My name is Davis Smith. I'm the CEO of Cotopaxi and an MBA graduate of the Wharton School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankum, who will host this week's interview. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. My name is Kurt Frankum, and today I have the opportunity to sit down through the powers of the internet with Mark and Jane Johnson. How are you two? We're doing great. Good. Nice to see you, hear you. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, we've had, we were sort of joking before. I've interviewed you both uh, on the Leading Saints podcast and in various uh, on various topics. And and uh, here we are again, another interview. So we're just like old friends getting together, right? <laughs> we have known each other a long time, actually. It yeah. has seemed like a number of interact. We just can't get enough of you, Kurt. That's right. I know, right? <laughs> well, we'll see how this one goes. So <laughs> nice. Well, uh, maybe, you know, I don't know if uh, I, I think at some point, maybe you two were uh, somewhat considered as a Latter-day Saint power couple, if such thing exists, you know, both very successful individuals that uh, Jane, your experience being on national television and being familiar with your career. But, uh, you know, when you meet somebody, maybe in your ward or just in your community, how do you introduce your, yourself? Well, I, I mean, I think I, I always feel about the analogy, not the analogy, but this, the, uh, the place when we're in the temple and we're in white, you know, when we're sort of thinking about it in a faith-based way, you know, everything is equal, you know, in the sight of God and we're, all dressed in white and we're brothers and sisters. So, I mean, I think that that, you know, it's just super important. You know, I was recently on a uh, trip uh, to humanitarian experience for youth with my daughter, you know, with 16, you see 18 year olds. And I, I noted, you know, as we went through the, that week, just how much I felt at home with them. And I think they felt at home with me. And that, you know, even though there was a pretty significant age difference, I won't say how much, uh, I just felt, I felt kind of like we were all knitted together as, as one group in the faith and in the service that we were doing in Puerto Rico. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just really amazing experience and how that sort of brings together this sort of equality, you know, given yeah. uh, the faith that we have. Yeah, for sure. And that's what I love this platform on this podcast is that we can, you know, bring really dynamic individuals in the professional world. But, uh, at, you know, each Sunday we sort of show up and sit in the same pews and, and sing the same songs and, and worship together. It's awesome. So, uh, Jane, for those of you, that, that, those listening that may not be as familiar with some of your background and, and career and, uh, and maybe where you're spending your time, uh, recently, uh, how do you explain that? Um, well, I had a, a career in journalism that was somewhat unexpected and in many ways, um, not sought after, <laughs> but uh, I started my television career um, out of Brigham Young University at KSL Television in Salt Lake City and um, then moved to uh, network television uh, as a correspondent um, at ABC News in Los Angeles 
and um, sort of traveled all over the world. A lot of international news coverage um, from the fall of the Suharto government in Indonesia to um, the NATO airstrikes in Kosovo and the refugee crisis in Macedonia. And for those who remember the O.J. Simpson trials, things like that, that um, that that took me, you know, sort of all over the world. And then I um, moved to New York City, where I hosted the morning program on CBS, the network morning show with Brian Gumbel. Um, and then um, gave it up uh, to, to marry Mark and to move to Boston. And uh, we had two children in, in three years. And, um, and I have enjoyed that season of my life, um, you know, focusing on my family and, and being a mother. Um, I have since sort of started to um, have been over a few years now working at the National Public Radio Station in Boston, um, hosting a nationally syndicated uh, program there. So, I've had my feet in in journalism for for many years, um, and um, really appreciate the opportunity that has given me and the platform it has given me to to talk about issues that are really important to me. Um, yeah, so. yeah. And you mentioned you know your career uh, sort of changed directions as you met Mark and you two were married and and whatnot. I'm just curious what you learned from that experience, you know, speaking maybe to an audience of Latter-day Saints who both male and female who are excited about maybe a professional path and journey, but still want to, you know, include, uh, you know, marriage and raising families and whatnot. Uh, was there anything you learned from that, that in hindsight maybe would be helpful to reflect upon? Um, well, I think often, um, you know, we, we think that we can have it all. And I think, what I have learned is you really can't have it all, all at once. Hmm. And, um, that there are seasons in life. And I think sometimes, you know, someone will tell you that, um, you know, what you should do or could do or must do. I think you have to listen to your heart. And I, I do think that every experience is different and every situation is different. And we each respond to the call, if you will, um, for different experiences in our lives based on our own circumstance and really our own desire. And so I would say to, to listen to your heart and to really remember what is most important to you. Um, you know, I, I wrote a book about motherhood and the importance of motherhood and, um, and I, and, and, while I think that that is the most important role I could ever have, I do think it's also important to, you know, sort of stretch my muscles and, and fulfill the need I have to sort of, um, do something else in my circumstance, very part-time, um, you know, to, to engage in something that I love, which is journalism. So I think everybody needs to make that decision for themselves, but, um, most importantly to listen to your heart and listen to the spirit and, um, and remember, you know, that you're on the Lord's errand in whatever you do at home and, and professionally. Yeah. And and I appreciate that, that, you know, we, we can't, sometimes we want lots of things and sometimes you can't have it all at once. Right. And so there's different seasons in life that you go through that, um, you know, that you, you uh, benefit from each of those seasons as they come, but recognize that, uh, you know, moving on to another, another stage of life is, is beneficial. So Mark, anything that you'd add from, from your perspective going, you know, marrying and in your professional life? No, I think that that was really well said. I mean, you know, the only thing I, yeah, I would just reinforce the the point about listening to your heart and you have to find your own equilibrium, right? I mean, you, I, I think you could be 
there are a set of principles that we follow just about the importance of faith and family. But I do think within the rubric of one's life or in a combination of lives, you, you, you know, it's, it's, if you're not feeling like you're in equilibrium because, you know, you have a passion for something professionally, then, you know, you can try and try and try, but, you know, you're constantly sort of longing for that piece. So, um, you know, it's kind of the difference of like, why does one family feel the need to have 12 kids and another feels the need to have two kids, right? You can't judge yeah. one versus the other. You can't judge, I think, one that feels like they need a professional component within their life, be that the husband or the wife. And, and you know, I, I think fulfillment comes in different ways for different people. And it's all about feeling like that fulfillment is there and that equilibrium is there. And that's a very personal choice. Yeah, love it. Well, let's pivot back to maybe earlier on in, in both of your professional lives. Jane, we'll, we'll start with yours and, and Mark, we'll talk about yours after. But Jane, was there a certain point where journalism was, you realized that that was a passion that you definitely wanted to, to pursue in your, in your professional journey. When, when did that happen? Well, I went to, to BYU on a music scholarship on a violin performance scholarship, actually. Mm. And, um, and then sort of decided that I wanted to do that for myself, not as a career, but for something that I, as something that I loved to do, um, and had always really enjoyed writing and storytelling. And, in high school, I remember a history teacher assigned us to read Time magazine cover to cover every week. And I couldn't wait for that magazine to come in the mail. It just was so exciting to me to read about news, what was happening around the world, and to sort of see how a journalist could take that information and be the conduit from that experience that they were having to the reader back home. And so when I was kind of looking around and deciding what I was going to do, um, I kind of literally fell into the experience of, of finding the campus TV and radio station at BYU. And, and it kind of, um, grew from there. I was, uh, soon I was, you know, um, TAing, uh, news writing classes and, um, you know, then started to work at KSL and sort of the rest is history. But, um, you know, I, I didn't set out to have this career in many ways. It kind of found me. And my mm -hmm. my goal in my career has always been, you know, to have the Lord know that he could trust me in whatever I was doing. So whether it was in network television, whether it was, you know, taking those experiences and using that platform to write a book about mental health, you know, that I just wanted the Lord to know that his experiences, the experiences I had in my life could be used for his purposes. And so I wanted him to know always that he could trust me. And that was sort of a guiding principle that I had from the very beginning um, that has carried me through to this day. Yeah, I, I appreciate that last point a lot. This that we can get very, um, you know, narrow sighted or myopic in our in our journey in in our professional lives. Like I, I you know, majored in business. So therefore, I, I've got to have this business to, you know, path or whatever. But to realize there are so many ways that maybe these skills and this education will bless not only your life, your family's life, but even the church as you find different ways to use it. So your journalism background, you know, was served you very well in your professional life, but now you've been able to write books, especially, you know, your book about mental health, Silent Souls Weeping, that has blessed so many because you have that background in interviewing people and, and telling that story and, and writing about it. So it's interesting. I, I felt like after I had written Silent Souls Weeping and just heard from countless people about their experience and how reading 
that book that I had taken my journalism skills to use to sort of open the conversation about depression and anxiety and and other mental health challenges, I, I really to this day feel like the experiences that led me to the point where I could write that book, um, I had those experiences so I could um, have this next chapter and write that book and um, sort of open a conversation for others. So, you know, we, we each need to be used in our own way, but I feel like... Um, to be very intentional about sort of turning things over to God and, and letting him guide you and guide your experiences and guide your path. I think that's a really important principle to understand that he will guide you if you let him and you're, you know, sort of open and honest about that being your intention. There's a uniqueness about silent souls weeping and, and Jane's uh, love and capacity for storytelling. You know, so much of, of the point of the book was to bring, the issues of mental health out of the shadows and into open discourse, especially amongst our faith. And, you know, I think it's not just about write a book, but it's about being able to really tell compelling stories as the mechanism to, to really bring that to the forefront. And even the fact of interviewing 150 people is a skill set of being able to, to interview those people and then translate that into a clear story that can that can grab people to say, you know, I've, I, I can resonate with that and I can feel less um, impeded to hold back that I can that I can open up and we can have a conversation. And I think, you know, I always love to 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 I love documentary work. And so even though mm -hmm. I was doing live news and day to day sort of interviews, I always love the long format. And so I took that love and desire to to participate in documentary television making and sort of brought it to print in a way that sort of hadn't been done before at Deseret Book. And so, yeah. you know, um, we're, we're each used in different ways and our capacities are magnified if we will allow them to be. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, I want to, I, I love that the book you've written and the, the work you've done there. And especially I think in the context of maybe some students listening to this or, or people starting off in their professional career, that can be a very taxing time on an individual's mental health. And so being familiar with some of those resources, you know, uh, you can sort of feel alone thinking, well, everybody must feel this stressed. Everybody must feel this alone or depressed at times. And I just need to get through it. But just being familiar with the, some of those resources as you go through difficult, uh, intensive uh, periods of, of your life can be helpful. Yeah. So. You know, Mark just called to be, was just called to be the bishop of a, of a young adult ward in Boston. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've just had an amazing experience working with these young single adults. And, you know, we hear, I hear over and over again about what you just said about sort of the isolation, especially now and, and during COVID and pandemic and yeah. sort of the feeling of being alone and not quite knowing the future and the job market is so different now. And what do we do? And, you know, it's, it's a challenge. And so I appreciate what you said, Kurt, about, you know, sort of understanding that there are resources out there to, to help us and to sort of guide us. And so yeah. that's, that's what I wanted to do with, with this book. Cool. Well, Mark, let's uh, pivot to your uh, your early life and the beginning of, of maybe thinking what you wanted to be when you grew up. Uh, <laughs> when when did you realize that you were you're a business guy? Like you wanted to take a path that you know, especially going through MBA school and whatnot. Was there a moment where when you knew that was your journey? Well, I mean, I I grew up having no conception of being a business guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all I all I knew is since I was mm, probably twelve years old is. I wanted to be a fighter pilot and fly off carriers. My dad was a 
World War II, uh, Marine Corps fighter pilot veteran. I just wanted to emulate him. I just loved airplanes, and that got me to thinking I'll go to the Naval Academy. My eyes didn't stay 2020 and in the Navy or in the military, I guess, for that matter. You know, you're not going to be actually flying the plane unless you have perfect vision. And I didn't want to sit in the back seat as a navigator or a weapons officer, so I decided to, you know, to go nuclear power program in the Navy, which ended up being a division officer on surface ships, and you know, kind of basically having divisions of, of uh, you know, of men at the time that were, uh, you know, doing different things on the ship. And so, the long story short is, I really fell in love more with the leadership and management than I did with the technical side of having been an aerospace engineer at the academy and having been nuclear power trained on the technical side. I, I enjoyed more the leadership and management. And so, when mm-hmm. I decided to move on from the Navy because of a host of reasons, you know, more about the Navy changing versus me not having a passion anymore for it. I mean, I still really loved the Navy and loved it at the time, but it was the right thing to get out. And, you know, I just said the next best thing would be, you know, what I loved was leadership and management and go to Harvard business school and sort of have that, that education to transmission transition me outside the military into a, into a different profession. So I always think, you know, in our work of strategy, we talk about deliberate strategy versus emergent strategy. And I think most people in life could say there's a whole lot of emergent (laughs) that happens into ultimately where you land in a career. I mean, I had some deliberate, I had some real intentionality at the beginning, right? And some things happened, life-changing events. And as we were talking earlier, I think having a degree in engineering gave me a way to think, even if I didn't literally apply, you know, direct application of aerospace engineering. It gave me a way to think as it led me to the work that I did coming out of business school and, you know, working in a consulting firm um, and management consulting and in particular the space of engineering and innovation. And then, you know, when I co-founded Innisight, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, that Mm -hmm. that was, you know, that was focused on innovation and strategy. And again, you know, the sort of the experiences of, of, of my professional life did help lead me to be successful, I think, in what I was doing at Innisight. But would I have ever thought that I would have ended up co-founding a strategy and innovation consulting for, firm and business at, you know, even 25 years old? No. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And <clears throat> so with your journey towards Harvard, I mean, I've, I've talked with several individuals on, on this podcast and they there there was a moment where they thought it's Harvard or nothing you know like I want to go to Harvard it's such a highly respected school especially their MBA program and so tell us about that journey of uh, before making it to Harvard like uh, what was that like well you know the, the transition was was pretty quick I mean I I, I w- was in the first Gulf War on a on a cruiser um, in the Red Sea got back in 1991 uh transferred in 1992 to Washington, D.C. and was working, you know, at the Pentagon and, you know, started to learn a lot of information about where the Navy fleet was going, especially with nuclear-powered ships. And as soon as the sort of the writing on the wall that things weren't going to be exactly as I envisioned, I started to make the decision that I ought to transition out of the Navy. And that's what led me to decide that uh, I should go to business school. And I think it was close to Harvard or nothing. Um, I, uh, I applied <laughs> to Harvard Business School. I spent a lot of time on the application, you know, for probably 
oh, I don't know, a good, you know, eight, eight months prior to, you know, when you'd get accepted. You know, so I started that process pretty early. I think I applied to a couple other schools, MIT Sloan. You know, maybe I, maybe there were three other schools, Wharton and, and, and Stanford, but, but my focus was really on the Harvard Business School, um, you know, and uh, I just really felt like that was the right place for me. Um, and, you know, I tried to get some experience. I actually ended up getting out of the Navy and doing an internship for Booz Allen Hamilton before I started business school. That sort of further helped, you know, me in my preparation. But but the process was simply the decision to get out of the Navy first and then saying, I thought I needed a transition through a business school to make make it into, you know, civilian life and, and what I wanted to do in business to me was the closest analog towards the leadership and management experiences I had in the Navy. Yeah. Yeah. Any advice you'd give? I mean, attending a, an MBA program at, you know, in the Harvard at Harvard is, it can be quite competitive. Uh, any advice you'd give to maybe students dealing with a really competitive, you know, graduate program? Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I, I think this is maybe cutting across the board, even to undergraduate programs. I, I think, so more and more schools are thinking about the whole person, um, mm. and especially in graduate schools like Harvard. I mean, you know, Harvard's mission is uh, Harvard is to is to really generate, um, cultivate, educate future leaders in business, government, and other institutions that really truly are leaders of character, uh, capable to lead. Perhaps more than just say management, which is sort of the day to day execution. You know, leadership is really defining, you know, where where is an organization can go and making things for the better, you know, probably a little bit uh, more enabled in terms of the vision and, and, and skill set to to make things happen out of nothing. You know, that's sort of maybe the entrepreneurial side things as well as well. So I think it's important. Um, you know, the academics will always be important, you know, and for the schools that want the GMATs, but being able to demonstrate uh, and, and that you have a perspective about leadership and that you've experienced what it means to be a leader and that you have that on your, on your resume, I think is really important. Um, it could come through, uh, sort of leadership experiences on your mission, but other opportunities to show that you've been able to be entrepreneurial, um, in leadership side of that or leadership in terms of an existing organization or a service group or some form of uh, work that you do prior to business school, I think is important to show, you know, in particular that, if you will, extracurricular, uh, you know, outside of just being good at, at, at academics, being good at economics or good at organizational behavior or what have you. Um, and I think, you know, being able to show that you're a good communicator, which is, I think, you know, maybe the other side of the coin of good leadership. So yeah. how, how can you demonstrate that you appreciate what it means to be a good communicator and someone who takes initiative? You know, these things then become the underpin underpinnings of showing that you have an interest and a proclivity towards leadership. I think that's awesome. a big piece of what these schools look for. Yeah. Well, as we do uh, in these interviews, I had you prepare uh, five or six uh, principles that maybe have served you well in your uh, professional life or through through school or whatever it be. And so let's jump into these and we'll, we'll uh, continue our discussion. The first one being take the initiative, making things happen by being creative 
and how you can make things happen first, not just have everything happen to you or do only what's required of you. So what, what, what would Jeb say about initiative and taking initiative? Well, you know, I think there are two parts of the foundation for my experience. So one was at the Naval Academy in your first year, your plebe year, we all had to read message to Garcia and I won't go into the long story, but it's basically a, a, uh, a, a soldier, um, in the, um, Spanish American war who, you know, needed to take a message to Garcia, who was the commander and used his own initiative to figure out how he was going to get the message to him. And it was just really a story about waiting for, for you to be told versus creating a solution out of nothing and being able to figure out how to make things happen by sort of working with other people and navigating through, you know, where that sort of got reinforced to me was, you know, after business school, I read a book called high flyers, which was the story about what made people really rise to the top at AT&T Bell Labs. And, you know, Bell Labs was considered like the cream of a crop in its day in the 60s and 70s in terms of the most breakthrough kinds of technologies and innovations coming out. And you had to be the smartest of the smart to, you know, to get hired, you know, and be part of Bell Laboratories. But they did a study in terms of what really broke out those that seemed to create more patents and more discoveries than other people. And it was, sure, they had to have a minimum level of smarts to get in there. But what they found out was the people that were really good at communications and networking and reaching out to other people, uh, you know, being able to sort of gather in other thought people's thoughts and being humbled to to understand where they came. But it all sort of, to me, is still under the guise of initiative, that they were proactive to reach out to the rest of the organization and them some to try to build knowledge and insights. They weren't just sort of sitting back and saying, hey, you know, what comes to me and how smart I am. They were the makers and the doers of things, and they're proactive. Um, and I've just felt in my experience of, of my life in the Navy and in my life, you know, in business, that what really makes a huge amount of difference is, is, is switching from having it acted upon you to acting upon it mm-hmm. and, and, and really trying to have that, that idea to th- kind of think ahead and move ahead and reach out and not wait for somebody to tell you to do it. it just so much makes the difference between, I think the majority of the pack that's just sort of waiting to say, what do I have to do next? And what's on my checklist? And what am I told to do? And what does my job description say that I need to do to fulfill my performance requirements? And, and I think the distinction between those that have been really successful to those that have reached, you know, reached out in a form of initiative to make some things happen that just aren't in the job description. Yeah. In journalism, we used to say, produce it, (laughs) you know, make it happen. And I think, you know, that applies actually to, to my experiences. I, obviously didn't go to business school, but I, you know, sort of working at the highest levels of journalism realized that, you know, nothing is going to be handed to you. And so everything that comes to you, you know, sometimes you have an empty slate, you know, at the beginning of the day, you have nothing on your plate and you have a, you have to produce a story by the end of the day. And I think, you know, everything, um, you know, it, it, it just takes initiative and reaching out and making things happen and not relying on anybody else to do that. You know, it's a really important principle uh, that yeah. I think carries across the board. Yeah. I love that. Uh, next principle is uh, be pr- a proactive communicator. 
which one wants to tackle that one first? I'll let the communicators start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think, you know, good communication is always clear and concise and, um, and, and in many ways, simple, you know, I think, I think, you know, especially a lot of smart people that I've met over the years whom I've interviewed or, you know, had the opportunity to have conversations with, I think sometimes, you know, people can get caught up in their own, intelligence. And I think, you know, communicating in a simple, thoughtful, straightforward, humble way has always been what has, you know, sort of carried the day, um, as far as I'm concerned as a communicator. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, and not to be negative about the, what can go wrong, but I think it's important, (laughs) you know, that my experience has been too, you know, if you don't do everything that Jane said, you know, there's the one analogy of the chain, you know, somebody said something about what was happening, you know, and then somebody translated that to somebody else. And before you know it, the the last person completely got wrong, the original, you know, message, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and I do think that's kind of a, a good kind of analogy of what, you know, oftentimes happens is in organizations, right? Is the one person will say something, it's interpreted by this person one way, and then it gets transferred that way. So being conscious of, you know, the clarity and the conciseness of the communication, but also the conduit of the communication and where is it going and how do you reach the people and, you know, who best to receive the information and, and really understanding that, you know, you could have the best of content and information, but if it's not translated and transferred in the right way, then it's, then it's not going to have the impact, uh, you know, to affect other people's decisions or behaviors. And I just see that the, the combination of the content and the clarity of the communications along with the mechanism of how it's communicated in many organizations breaks down. You know, people, uh, you know, won't write, write the email the right way or they won't send it and people will fill in the narrative, you know, and wonder what's going on. Um, so again, proactive, consistent, at being at the risk of over communicating, you can almost never over communicate. And, um, and I, and I've just seen the other side where communication is done poorly or it's done, you know, not enough. And for all the good sort of content, um, it gets lost in the fact that it wasn't effectively communicated. Yeah, and I don't think there's as much emphasis on the communication as there are, there is on the content generation. Yeah, and are there any specific examples or, or stories that, that illustrate that? Because I, you know, both of your experiences being part of very, um, you know, well-respected, intimidating organizations like Harvard, like a, a large, you know, news network where you sort of feel intimidated to step forward and clarify things or raise your hand when you assume the whole room is on board, but maybe you're a little lost. And so any practical skill sets that you would recommend in order to identify when communication is not there? I'll speak from the consulting side, which is, you know, which is really an organization that tries to be egalitarian because you are a unstructured problem solving organization, right? You're not the military, you're not command and control, you're trying to figure things out. And everybody's input is important, you know, diversity of thought, diversity of experience. And I often find junior folks that come in, to your point, are intimidated. They don't want to come up with the wrong thing to say. Uh, You know, they maybe feel like, you know, there's this hierarchy in general. 
Um, and I would just encourage that you try to, of course, not be like, hey, I'm going to say more than the senior person says. But I think you just got to get out there and be in the ring in, in, mm-hmm. in my profession, you know, in a, in a, in a lot of what's going to come out of a, an MBA, you know, going into a corporation that's going to want to be in teams or a consulting team or maybe even an investment banking team. Um, you know, how do you you know, how do you go out? You're never going to get good at your ability to communicate and offer up a way of thinking on, on a topic unless you practice, unless you kind of get out there and you take some risk. And I think if you do it in a sincere, deferential way and you don't, you know, go over the top and the amount of airtime you're taking, uh, it's going to serve you well because it's going to build your skill set and, and you're going to add more value than you think. I think it's, uh, it's unfortunate when somebody hardly ever speaks thinking that they're just taking notes or they don't really have anything to say because they're so junior. How could they ever add anything to all these experienced people? Mm. But, uh, you got to just overcome that fear. And I would just encourage the women who are listening. Um, I think sometimes, you know, certainly in management and not so much in journalism anymore, but when I started, it was true that sometimes mm. in man- in management meetings or story meetings, you know, there weren't a lot of women around the table. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I would just encourage the women who are listening to speak up. And if they're not, um, you know, acknowledged the first time, you know, keep going. Um, because I think sometimes in what has, what has been, um, and I hope is changing, I think is changing sort of a male dominated, um, you know, kind of professional environment, I think it can be very hard. Um, and so, you know, speak up and, um, you know, as Mark said, put your hat in the ring and don't be afraid to make your voice be heard because you matter and, you know, your opinions and the opinions of women, um, really change an organization for the better, I think in so many ways. You know, not that it should come to this, but it, but it, but it does help to know how much there is a receptivity. Is uh, diversity and uh, you know DEI, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a big, big movement within probably the corporate, not just the corporate world, and other organizations, and you know, so that is really creating diversity for sure, gender, diversity of ethnicity, diversity of thought, you know, it's a big deal. And, you know, so I think it should further give uh, reinforcement to this point to speak up, you know, yeah. that this is what organizations really want and need and need. Yeah, for sure. Anything else related to communication that uh, we haven't touched on? Well, I mean, I guess I would just lastly say, you, you know, you don't uh, need to be, um, the CEO or a senior person, you know, or a broadcast journalist to say, I, you know, I, I think you gotta just, if you say it enough times to yourself, like initiative and communications, and you say, I'm going to focus on it throughout your life by just the mere fact that you've stated that I'm going to be a good communicator and you, it's always top of mind. You'll become a good communicator. I know that sounds a little vague, but I can promise you if you put, your emphasis on saying a big piece of what I am to do is to be a good communicator. You'll figure out how to be a good communicator. I want to be, I want to be a good communicator. Yeah. 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 That's great. Uh, the next principle is, um, so much of effective leadership and management of organizations is about thinking future back and outside in. This is uh, your sweet spot, right, Mark? 
That's right. <laughs> you wrote a book on this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, and it all kind of goes back and it'd be too long of, uh, I'd be into a long monologue, so I don't want to do that to you. But, uh, but it all comes down to the problem of companies that kind of get stuck in the here and now and they get stuck, you know, to perpetuating <clears throat> their business model indefinitely and they end up getting disruptive, you know, in the whole theory of disruption and Clay Christensen's work and all that. And, and it gets even worse, you know, you sort of get anchored into like Michael Porter's five forces of competitive strategy. And, and I think institutions, companies start to get mired into how do I beat the competition? How do I worry about, you know, how I'm going to win, win the game and not enough about, well, actually the game may change and you may have to play a new game. And, and why worry about the competition and, and where the competition's going? You should worry about the customer and where the customer's going. Uh, because that's what really matters. That's what's going to create the value. So the whole idea about future back is to use the Wayne Gretzky analogy, skate to where the puck, the hockey puck is going versus where it is. Mm-hmm. And we might even push it further to say if you really become visionary and forward, future back oriented, you can actually shape where the puck should go. So, you know, my, again, my experience of, of course, it's been the work of insight, but just in general, I think the more you can be kind of along the lines of proactive and being initiative to say, what are things going to look like 10 years from now? You know, I may not have a perfect crystal ball of that, but I can get an impressionist painting and I can kind of begin to get some clarity of, you know, whether it's in my personal life or whether it's for the organization. And then that kind of ties to, you know, Peter Drucker, the great management guru said, you know, the purpose of business is to create a customer. Well, it shouldn't just be about where the customer is today. Where's the customer's most important needs, most important unsatisfied needs, where are they going to go and really be kind of trying to anticipate where that is. So that's the background of what it means to be future back and outside in too many companies become inside, become present forward. They're stuck in their paradigm of today and trying to increment it slowly into the future, which is very dangerous when the environment can change dramatically. And then they become very inside out. They have a product, they want to push it on customers and, you know, they can keep engineering it and incrementing it and they've lost really what is the customer ultimately trying to get done in her life, especially as you think about the way the future circumstances changed. So we want to kind of get out of the four walls of the office and look out into, into the actual marketplace. And we want to think about that anticipatory, you know, like, Hey, where's that going? Not just a couple of years, but how could it dramatically change in five years? And just deeply have that empathy to say, I'm going to really understand what this person's progress in life is before I start thinking about what I need to create for that customer, as opposed to you get stuck in your orthodoxies and just want to push things on that customer. Yeah. And I'm curious, how would you articulate these things? And I don't know, maybe this isn't a perfect fit for some of these principles, but for I'm thinking of like current uh, business school students who, I mean, you sort of live your life is consumed by that semester, right? And once that semester is on, then you'll think about the rest of your life. But is there any application in maybe, uh, you know, getting through school or, or these sure. types of things? Yeah. I mean, one is, you know, just from a pure discipline of, you know, what are the different fields within an MBA or the different, you know, kind of, uh, departments. Um, I mean, I, I think, 
strategy, the, the discipline of strategy needs to have a, have vision addended, you know, as part of that discipline, like the more students can think about how do you become visionaries? Like, uh, you know, I mean, the, I mean, they're overused examples, but they're the best ones, the visionaries of Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos, or, you know, those that have really shown what, you know, sort of the, 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 the internet 3.0 is done. Um, mm-hmm. you know, th- those kinds of people to emulate and, you know, how you bring that forward into your, your study, both within school, but then experientially, um, I just think vision is critical because the world changes too fast. If you can't be visionary to, to anticipate where things are going to go, you're going to get stuck and operate and execute and just try to run things the way they are when maybe, you know, you're running it very efficiently, but you're focused on the wrong things because the game has changed. So I think you could Mm -hmm. add, what does it mean to be a visionary? Just like, what does it mean to be a communicator? I think the other thing is, um, you know, marketing, consumer insights, I think are, are, they've always been important, but they're more important than ever you know, the disciplines of marketing, the discipline of being good at consumer insights, really understanding that consumer because their circumstances are more, more apparent, more capable, more risky than ever of having, you know, to become changed circumstances. So being relentlessly focused on the consumer, understanding the five P's of marketing, all those kinds of things, I think just become more and more important as we progress in time. Yeah. And then the the outside in component. I mean, in an organizational context, that's you know being aware of maybe some of the outside threats or competition or things, rather than just being worried about what's happening internally. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, certainly it's important to think internally about the culture and to think internally about how do you continue to drive product development. But um, the outside in component is to say, you know, we can't live in a vacuum we have to constantly be developing a future ready, a foresight oriented kind of perspective and being able to understand what are entrepreneurs doing? What are startups doing in our space? Um, you know, what's the consumer's behavior and how is it changing? And it's just not a one and done. You have to be able to stay on top of those things in the environment, constantly sort of having a future environment scan, and saying that it's never really done. You know, it's not something you just look at every five years. I think it has to be sort of a dynamic outside in perspective. And so, you know, I think, you know, in the early days, uh, you know, maybe it won't apply as much to be be asked to do a certain kind of function. But as you go on, I think, again, what has demonstrated the successful companies have been the ones that think in a time dimension of future back and think in a uh, you know, a relentless focus on what is the customer circumstance and how is it changing as opposed to, we have to get another product out the door. So this next one, uh, and Jane, you're just from reading some of your writings, this, uh, I can see examples of this is, you know, being authentic and error on the side of transparency in all of your dealings, uh, you know, reading your silent souls weeping book. I mean, you, you, you tell your story of your mental health journey and I can't think of anything more authentic than, than that was, but speak to me just about authenticity and the power of that transparency. Well, I always used to say in journalism that the audience can sniff a fake a mile away. (laughs) And 
So, you know, the importance of being who you are, um, is so important. And, uh, you know, in the context of my book and writing in the very first chapter about my own experience with depression and how that, um, you know, that devastating experience, um, you know, impacted me and our family. And, um, it was scary to, to share that it was, you know, Mm -hmm. I wondered up until the day that book was published and even after what have I done? (laughs) But I have to tell you that, that the authenticity associated with that, with revealing that experience and sharing that it gave permission for other people to say me too, you know, and to be able to, um, you know, to, to share their own experience. Um, you know, I, I, I often say that, um, you know, if, if you, if you think, you know, you're alone, you're, you're not, you know, there are other people who are experiencing what you're going through. And, um, and so the authenticity of being able to just be open, but it's a process of finding your voice. You know, I mean, I'm not sure I could have done what I did with silent souls weeping, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, it was a process of being able to find my voice, find my authentic voice and being completely comfortable in that space to be able to sort of open up and, and be comfortable with, you know, kind of how that was going to land good and bad, (laughs) you know, that was okay because I was willing to take the risk, but that took time. And I learned that. Um, and so everyone I think can learn that it is a process, but it's really an important one. Yeah. And I appreciate the the concept of finding your voice. You know, I just think of professionals or students, uh, in the, in the business world, you know, there's sort of this feeling of like, I, I figured I, you know, I graduated with my MBA and I know what I'm doing at this point, but we're still, you know, there's just this journey of finding your voice. You know, like you said, you couldn't have written that book 20 years earlier for your own experience. You, there are some things you need to experience and, and learning how to articulate some of this, these things that allowed you to be a little more vulnerable that way. Right. And to Mark's point earlier about, you know, wanting to be a good communicator, wanting to, you know, having that as a goal, I think, I think being authentic could absolutely be a goal for someone. I think in our culture, sometimes we put up, we put up facades, you know, and I think in our faith community, we do that too. You know, we do that to kind of look a certain way or be perfect in a certain manner. And I think, you know, to sort of be more authentic and real and, I think people latch on to that and they appreciate that, um, in many different settings. Um, you know, in my world, in, in your world, Mark, you know, I think in a lot of different venues that really works. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was beautifully said. I mean, the only thing I would add is on a leadership perspective, authentic leadership, right. Leads to, leads to, um, people wanting to follow you as a leader, right. They, they trust you, uh, because they sense that you are sincere and they sense that what you are saying is what you think. And if, if they don't sense that authenticity, if they think you're, you know, trying to shape the message too much, uh, then, then they kind of question what your motives as a leader. And so I think authentic leadership always wins the day. I love that. I think that's absolutely right. A hundred percent. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's almost cliche at this point to say, you know, you don't need a title to be a leader type of thing. But this is really where leadership is born is that one individual, whether they're a leader or not, that steps forward and takes an, and steps into an authentic moment. And then it gives permission they for everybody else around exactly. them. Yeah. The final principle is the underpinnings of successful innovation is effective learning. And the underpinnings of effective learning is humility. We do have one more after that that was added. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm sorry. All right, but yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll start us on this one. You know, Innisight started as an innovation consulting firm. I mean, we're also a lot about strategy. But, you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, back to working in, a, in an unstructured problem-solving creative group that needs to be egalitarian, that needs to be able to get the diversity of thought, you know, so innovation to be able to come up with something that's new and different, uh, that really creates value, uh, is a empirical pursuit. You know, it's a process, you know, as Jane said earlier, you know, you have to oftentimes take three steps forward, a step backwards. You have to diverge before you converge. Um, you have to be able to focus on coming up with a hypothesis and then test and learn. And so, the ability to learn, the ability to say, what is it that I need to learn? And then how am I going to learn that is really important. And I think there are plenty of organizations that are not good as learning organizations, and they need to be good learning organizations if they're going to be good at innovation, which a lot of organizations really say they desperately need. You know, when they, and they, when they say innovation, they mean they need to get beyond the core. They need to try to create new and different growth. You know, that's not just incrementing an existing product. And then when you take learning and you say, well, how do you really accumulate the knowledge and insights, right? You know, how do you seek the understanding that leads to knowledge and insights that leads to decisions? Um, back to you need to be able to take input from different places, mm -hmm. different perspectives. Uh, and you have to be able to say, you know, maybe my my level of, of knowledge versus assumptions is pretty low. I have a lot more assumptions than knowledge and I need to go figure things out. And um, that takes humility. And, you know, I say that in a very practical sense. I mean, obviously, it's deeply embedded in our faith. But very practically, you know, our ability to 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 exercise humility is actually very uh, effective in the, in the process of learning, which then means you're going to be effective in the discipline of innovation. And so that's really, I think, a principle, a premise that, you know, is, I think, interesting for hopefully your audience to think about you know, both for themselves individually and for their organizations. I mean, at Insight, we actually have one of our values is humility, which I think is quite unique. Um, but we do have like a unique uh, sort of appreciation of humility. So how you can exercise that in a practical sense in your professional life, I think, is is good to make explicit. And I just yeah. have to say, I mean, I think that value from in you know at Innisight comes from Mark so <laughs> I mean he would never say that but I think you know it's the leadership you know that has it's top down you know when the leadership is humble you know it sort of sends a message and I think in any organization that's that's a really important thing yeah and I'm just too humble to say that it was me that had to sound humble <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, but I, I sort of have a follow-up question related to that is, you know, from a leadership standpoint, like how do you establish that? And maybe it relates back to some of these other principles we talked about as far as being authentic and, and a proactive communicator. Like how do you communicate to your team that 
I, I not that you are humble or you've mastered humility, but that you have a desire to be more humble. Well, I mean, I think you can get to it by, um, asking your people to appreciate other people's perspectives, to be a good listener, mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, be inclusive. Um, all of those things I think are mutually reinforcing to the principle that of humility, the way we're using it here. So you don't have to necessarily say, be humble. Uh, you can, you can use the mechanism the behaviors of what humility will be like that, you know, making sure that people are explicit about another way that's very practical is you don't know what you don't know. You know, like, so what are your known, what are your known unknowns and what are your unknown unknowns? <laughs> so, you know, we often talk a lot about that is known unknowns are, you know, pretty pretty good because you know you don't know this and you're going to go find it but what about the unknown unknowns right you, you don't know that you don't know something that you need to know that comes to being an appreciation for a process where people dig up the dirt if you will and you all of a sudden you know stir up the mud and you say oh wait a second that's another thing that we don't really know about that we should yeah. so you know some of this just i don't think you have to double down as a leader saying, you know, we all need to be humble. I think you have to just bring in the right kind of traits that go along with it that allow for it, an openness to learn from others, an openness to learn from other organizations. You know, there's a whole movement around open innovation. You know, it's not just going to be innovation from within, but you're going to pull from other organizations, their experiences that you can then adopt within your organization. Yeah. Really helpful. All right. The, the real last principle that we put down here is, uh, is mentorship. And I think I know where you're headed with this one, but, uh, what can you teach us about mentorship? Well, um, this is mine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark had the first five and I have the last one. Um, I, I, I've talked a lot about mentorship for many years and I think it's a really important principle. Um, I think if, if you can find someone and maybe it's more than one person along the journey, but I think it's really important. And I always said for women, especially, um, to find someone who can help you along the way, because I think, um, you know, sometimes the journey can be rough. It can be difficult. It can be unknown. And I look back at my own journey and I am so grateful that I, <laughs> To, to, to sort of bring in what we were just talking about, to sort of have the humility to say, I do not know what I'm doing here. I need help. Yeah. And, um, you know, to, to search out someone who I thought was smart, who I thought was trustworthy and who I thought could, would, would, in, would, you know, take me under her wing. And I'll never forget the first time at KSL television, I was a young reporter and, and there were, you know, a lot of people there who didn't think I belonged there. I hadn't paid my dues at other smaller stations. And here I was at this, you know, this, you know, station at KSL. And it was, you know, what do you know? And I kind of thought, no, oh, what do I know? And I remember asking the executive producer of the station to, to help me. And she took me into an edit bay that first week and she took a yellow pad and, um, 
she just started giving me notes and telling me things that I needed to understand and to learn. And we had sessions like that all the time. And throughout my career at CBS News, you know, I, I, Leslie Stahl was a huge mentor to me, the 60 Minutes correspondent. She would take me to lunch and she would say, watch out for this person. And when you're in this meeting, talk about that. And, you know, if you want a good story, call this person, you know. And I think it applies to every, um, every profession. It certainly was important to me to find someone who can mentor you who you can go to, to when you have questions, when you have doubts, when you have concerns, you know, when you just need a, you know, a friend. Um, I think it's a, a really important, um, it's a really important principle and it has yeah. been throughout my career. And I yeah. think Jane's bringing back the first principle, don't wait, you know, at least in my experience with organizations, she's saying, which is so critical is don't wait for you to be assigned a mentor, seek out mentors. Yeah. Right. Take the initiative to reach out and find someone who is experienced that is capable of providing you guidance and helping you with the watchouts and things like that. You know, we at Innisight, we assign formal mentors, but I think it's often the informal mentors and the ones that have been created by the individual or, or generated that are probably more powerful. And, you know, one of the greatest lessons I learned about men mentorship in the informal sense was working at Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, which was another creative organization that comes out, came out with the F-117 fighter, all these breakthrough kinds of airplanes. Um, and the head of Skunk Works said, you know, his job is to help mentor people. They don't even know they're being mentored, <laughs> you know, mm. but, that, but that was because it was so important, you know, with a creative organization to make it happen. So I think, you know, as Jane's pointing out, you know, it's seek out, you know, on the typical situation and have that initiative. And I think it's the more organic, um, uh, sort of, uh, developed through the auspices of individuals reaching out to individuals, as opposed to the organization assigning people, uh, that's where the real magic happens in this more sort of initiative to oriented type of, of mentorship, this more informal type than, than what, what you'll commonly hear in organizations that have formalized mentoring programs. Not to say that they don't, they're not helpful, but I think the real power is finding, finding, as you say, your voice, finding your voice in mentorship, right? Yeah. And, and I love that, you know, that for maybe some of those more seasoned uh, professionals that are listening that uh, you don't need permission per se, or like this formal relationship that you are now my mentor, you know, like let's go to lunch once a week, but to realize that you can mentor, mentor people even when they don't know it. And that's a, a good a good role to step into because you really bless organizations as you do that. Right. Yeah. So, um, well, you know, in that vein of, of mentorship, I want to make sure we, we take the time to, to honor somebody who's really had a significant influence on the Latter-day Saint MBA society. And one that I know had a significant impact on both of your lives. And that's like Clayton Christensen, any, any thoughts or perspectives that you'd want to share with this audience and regarding your relationship with Clayton Christensen? Well, I mean, you know, and I've said this, I think I've said this before on Leading Saints, um, mm -hmm. Kurt, I mean, you know, his, his mentorship has been profound. Um, it was a spiritual mentorship along with a professional mentorship. And, you know, I don't think he tried to figure out the distinction between the two, which is sort of interesting. You know, I, I think his, his principles of, of life and, you know, what drove his faith were imbued in his, 
way of working professionally. And, you know, sure, there were some things that were specific to the profession, which you wouldn't necessarily say are, you know, going to come and draw it back exactly to the gospel. But, you know, he was just the epitome of, of being authentic and caring and really driven to, you know, try to help, you know, influence and shape one's life, you know, according to his faith. And, you know, and he, he did it all with, with love and he, and he always did it with, you know, a real openness and curiosity and, uh, desire to, you know, always advance the cause, whether that was an individual that he was mentoring or whether it was just sort of the mentoring of his ideas. Um, you know, and I think that that was what made him as an amazing human being. And certainly you've spent a lot of time with him too, Jane. So, yeah, well, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, Clay introduced Mark to the gospel, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and Mark had gone to Clay. He'd been his student at Harvard Business School and Mark had gone to Clay and said, let's start a company together. And in the course of starting that company, Clay said, well, you know, if you're going to, if we're going to work together, let's, you know, you need to sort of understand how I think. And part of a large part of my life is the gospel. And would you like to, you know, sort of understand how I tick in that way? And, and, and by the way, I have a couple of missionaries I'd like to introduce you to. <laughs> anyway, you know, it was Clayton who um, opened the door of the gospel to, to Mark and, and Mark was baptized into our faith. And so, you know, I think the thing about Clayton was he was never, um, he never hesitated to, as Mark said, infuse his faith with his professional ideas and You know, he would stand up in, and you can speak to this more than I, but stand up in his classes at at HBS and and talk about his faith and essentially bear his testimony, you know, of the principles of of the gospel and how they sort of played in in a professional setting. And he was was unafraid to do that. And and I just really appreciate um, that courage. That takes a lot of courage in the circles that he would run in to, to always find a way and, ex- and an excuse to sort of insert, to insert his faith. Um, and, you know, he changed our family to get forever, you know, Mark joined the church and then we met after he joined the church and, you know, we married and, you know, Clayton, Clayton has influenced our family more than anybody, really more than yeah. anybody. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, um, this has been, I've really enjoyed this, this, uh, conversation and these principles. And I think, uh, those listening will appreciate them as well. Um, as we wrap up here, the, the final question I have, and, um, maybe Mark will start with you and, and Jane, you can, you can uh, answer at the end here. But, uh, if you were standing in front of a room full of MBA students or, uh, you know, professionals that are pursuing, a, a life in, in business, uh, what, what final encouragement would you give them? I think believe in yourself, uh, be confident even when you're not, or at least express that confidence. Uh, you know, the Lord loves you. And, uh, you know, as we know, it says in Helaman 12, you know, he takes weak things and makes them strong. So, you know, really try to set that vision and believe in what you want to do and that you, with your Heavenly Father's help, um, will make that happen. And you know, keep that, keep that confidence that should be in large measure God given. But, you know, again, I think you can make that explicit to say that I will, I will be intentional. I will be confident 
and that's how you can realize your your dreams and your aspirations. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, everything that you said is is exactly right. And and then I would add um, to keep your faith. You know, um, you know, you're in a um, you've been given a lot of gifts, and you have a lot of opportunities, and. You know, you have a lot of uh, reason to, um, to, to make a difference, um, to be the catalyst for a lot of amazing change in the world. But the most important thing you should always remember is to, is to keep close to your God and to keep your faith because everything else rests on that. That is the foundation upon which you will build everything that you create. And so if you don't have that, you know, you're just flailing in the wind. And that's the most important thing for a group of really talented, smart, young MBAs, young professionals. Please, please keep your faith. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.